0: Hey, uh, coming around here, um, Tim's gonna hand out a bowl, uh, this white bowl. Yeah, there you go, that one. And there's a piece of candy in, uh, does anybody like candy? Anybody like candy? We got, are we pro candy? I got one person that likes candy? Man, the, are y'all the, the Grinch that stole the Halloween or whatever, right? So, uh, you can just pass this, you can just hand it right here to Grant, take one, pass it down, um, and don't eat it yet, um, if you don't. You can take one. You don't have to eat the piece of candy here in a minute. Don't worry. I've not, um, I've not done anything suspicious to this candy. This is just good old fashioned candy. I bought it from the store. I can, um, I can affirm that I bought it from the store because, uh, John and Debbie Rogers, are they, are they right here? There you go. Hello, John and Debbie. We saw them yesterday. They were there as I was picking up this candy. Can you certify that this is store bought candy? And there is no tricks to this candy that's being passed around. It's wrapped in everything, right? Uh, Do you remember back in the days, I don't hear about this now, but you remember when you were younger, I do, where when Halloween came along and you went and got candy, your parents had to check the candy first to make sure nothing was wrong with it. Because I guess dubious people sabotaged candy. And I came to only understand later that was just their elaborate plan to eat my candy. But that's not the case here. It's just regular old candy. And a minute will partake of this. And yes, it does have um, it does have a reason besides the sugar stimulating effect of keeping you awake during a message. It does have a bigger reason. As it's passing around, I want you to take your Bible and turn over to Second Corinthians chapter twelve. 2 Corinthians chapter twelve. And let's stand in reverence to the reading of God's word. Oh I cannot tell you this passage of scripture. At least a couple times a week, I'm reading this to somebody. I'm reading this to myself. I'm quoting from this. I'm talking about it. I'm emphasizing some part of a life that's suffering using this passage of Scripture. Um, I mean, this is a high and lofty um, portion of Scripture, like all Scripture. Um, But the true emphasis of it is often missed. Chapter 12, verse 1 through 10 Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1 through 10. It is necessary to boast, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body... I do not know. God knows. Verse 4. He was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my behalf, I will not boast except in weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I, would, I will not be foolish. For I will have been speaking the truth. But I've from this so that no one will consider me beyond what he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there has been given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and hardships for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I pray over this. This. Let us capture... Some of the, the the truth that you wanted the original recipient, the Corinthians, to understand from this, and um, even as we try to illustrate and try to put flesh, on um, flesh and 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 meat on the bones here of this text, may there be an application to our life. May we find you more glorious. May we, we find that every bit of suffering, every bit of hardship, uh, there is a point. Would we, so today, so want you to dwell upon us. Would we make your strength and your grace what is truly sufficient. May the grace that many of us in here have named Christ as Savior, may that same grace be the grace that sustains us, the grace that empowers us, the grace that continually conforms us to Christ's image until the day we are with you. Would you help us in this text today? We need it. We so need it. And God's people said, Amen. Okay, you have a piece of candy before you, and I'm going to tell you, this was a hard candy to find. There is, uh, it, you know what's really interesting right now? There's all these kind of candies they have now, but a particular type of candy that seems to be really popular is the kind of candy that's called sweet and sour candy, right? Uh, this kind of candy did not exist back in my day. We just pretty much had candy, right? Willy Wonka hadn't, I guess, come up with this sweet and sour kind of stuff. But now the sweet and sour is actually... Really popular. In fact, it's so popular, they even have names for it. There's one It's considered the most sour. It's called Toxic Candy, right? Toxic Candy. Um, why, would you, why would that be appealing, anything that had toxic in it? I cease to understand it. But the thing about candy that's really hard, this sweet and sour candy, almost across the board, this sweet and sour candy works where it's sour and then it goes sweet. You know what's really hard to find? A candy that goes sweet, then sour, right? But, never fear, because God in His providence has created one candy that is sweet, then sour. And that candy is in your possession right now, right? If you so desire, you may go ahead and partake of that candy. If you would not, and um, you want to bypass your liberty in Christ, right? Or if you believe taking it will make your brother stumble, then don't take it. Uh, but this candy, you can now take, and I want you to notice something as you're taking it. First, it's very sweet, right? And then, after a little bit, you're going to start to notice that it becomes sour. Now, why would I share that with you? What what impact does that have? Paul clearly isn't talking about candy in this subject matter. But here's something he's doing in the text. The Corinthians. The Corinthians do not believe in the authenticity of his apostleship. There's a, there's a segment of them. He is continually, as you've seen in this text, tried to prove over and over his credentials. And Paul does something. Very interesting. He decides to draw out something that's not talked about much by Paul. It's not something that Paul focuses upon or talks a lot about. He pulls out something that for the Corinthians, this would have piqued their interest. This would have been something sweet to them. They would have loved it. The first Couple of verses when he talks about this. This would have piqued their interest this whole time while Paul's defending his apostleship because he didn't take money from them and there's a difference between his ministry and the ministry of these false apostles. He says something that would have been so sweet to the Corinthians. The Corinthians love the idea of these kind of ecstatic experiences, these supernatural experiences. And Paul talks about having visions and revelation in our text, visions of revelation. and revelation. We'll discover here in a minute the vision and re- visions plural and revelations plural means Paul had, had several visions. Um, visions where you're awake but you're in some kind of trance state and God has unfolded information to Paul. Remember, Paul is an apostle, capital A apostle. He's receiving direct revelation from the Lord. But it's but also Paul has been having. Paul has visions. but He also has revelations. The Greek where there is a apocalypse, right? Paul is getting a, a vision into the future. This is not something Paul talks about. When you look in the book of Acts, do you know what Paul usually talks a lot about? He talks about coming to faith in Christ, right? He, comes, he, he talks about his testimony, the Damascus Road experience. He does not talk a lot about these experiences of visions and revelations, something that he as an apostle is receiving, now there's different reasons why he would be receiving these. That some have speculated, some have really speculated that Paul had such a pioneer ministry that God gave him and uh, God gave him these visions and revelations to keep him encouraged. Because I don't know if you paid attention to last week, but boy, he sure went through a lot. You know, three times, three times shipwrecked, once a day and night in the deep. I'm just telling you what. Jesus better give me a vision into heaven if I'm going to keep doing work and be stranded in the ocean overnight. So all these difficult things have happened to him and it seems that these visions and revelations were something that would probably be an encouraging thing, but also a position of pride. So what Paul comes in is he says first, let me give you something sweet. You guys don't think I'm authentic. Let me tell you something that people don't know about, I don't talk about, and I'm just going to do it here really quick and then he gets to the sour." You're going to see here in a minute, he's going to talk about a thorn in the flesh. He's going to talk about something sour. This thorn in the flesh is not something that we want. This thorn in the flesh in the text says it's the messenger of Satan. I don't know about you. I don't like thorns in the flesh. Amen? And I don't like things coming from Satan. Amen? Don't like that. So Paul has to kind of give them some candy at first. He has to kind of sweeten the deal the first couple before things turn sour. But in the end, what you're going to discover is, although he starts off with something sweet that will eventually turn sour, in the end, that sour is really sweet. You know what kind of candy they don't have? And, man, if anybody's a candy, candy manufacturer, this would be a really great time. I couldn't find a candy that was sweet, then turned sour, then turned sweet, right? Right? Did I just blow your mind? if If you can invent that candy, call Willy Wonka, right? And then, you know, you've just created yourself a multimillionaire. That candy does not seem to exist. But in our text, that kind of idea does. I'll show this to you here in a minute. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. I want to walk through this. And if you're looking for a title for the message, the title for the message is, When What Is Sour Is Really Sweet. When What Is Sour Is Really Sweet. His thorn in the flesh, the torments, in the end you're going to find that this sour is really sweet. Before I jump ahead, um, if you've got a bulletin, you've got an outline. And um, I want to follow this outline and help you understand the text and and then expound on it and help hopefully get to a great application. I want you to notice in verse 1, and this is point number one in your outline. Paul does not want to talk about his experience. He doesn't want to talk about it. If you look in verse 1, notice this. He says, It is necessary to boast, though it is not profitable. Paul is saying, I'm about to tell you about visions and revelation. I'm a, in fact, he's going to talk about one of them. But remember, he's had plural of these, but he's really just going to reference one. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to talk about it. That's not what he wants to boast about. He actually wants to boast about Christ... But for their benefit and their good, he's going to have to talk about this a little bit. This is something sweet that they would listen up to his final words as, he, as, he, as he's rounding home on this text. He says, though it is necessary to boast, though it is not profitable, I don't want to do it, I will. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Plural, he's had many of these, but it really only talks about one. So po- point number one on your outline Paul doesn't want to talk about his experiences. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't like it. He's not into this. Um, This is not something he wants to even dabble in, but he's got to. You know the only thing I have noticed? Have you noticed actually, though, how much people actually love these kind of topics? Someone who comes to Christ and is brand new in Christ, usually one of the things that they get most excited to study is something called eschatology, the study of end time events. Or, or they'll say things like, I love the book of, of, of Revelations, right? And it's actually Revelation, but they'll call, I love the book of Revelations. And they're thinking like, man, I just, they just love the mystical and they love the, um, the secretive. And they, I mean, there's just kind of love. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I We should study. The book of Revelation is in the text of Scripture. The book of Daniel is in the text of Scripture. There is apocalyptic literature. We should study it. And even in our current day, this is what most people are excited about when it comes to Christianity. It seems like more people are excited about trying to figure out like when the Lord's going to come back than they might be excited about the Lord himself or or trying to figure it out or trying to gather all the nuances. So Paul knows this. Paul realizes this. They even had a problem with this. So he knew that this would kind of be something sweet and red meat to them, kind of. And he incentivizes it. He's got their attention. He doesn't want to talk about this, but he will. Go to verse 2. And this, um, by the way, just a side note. Please study end time events, but don't forget to, more importantly, study the Savior. Right? Study the Savior. The Word of God is here. It's sufficient source and You're going to find your most hope in the text of Scripture, not in trying to figure out everything, right? Verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. This is point number two. He downplays this experience. Although he sweetens it, kind of gives him the sweet candy before he gives him the sour of saying, okay, I'm going to talk about it. He downplays it. Notice in the text. He doesn't say, I am the man. What does he say? Third person, right? I know a man. He so doesn't even want to talk about this that he goes like, I know a man. He's obviously talking about himself, but he uses this third person idea. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago. He downplays the experience. He's not super proud of it. I mean, uh, not in a way of something that he would exalt in. It's something that he knows that it would it, it would actually um, enliven them to listen to him to give him a final hearing. Look at the look in verse two. He says, "A man who was caught up to the third heaven." Now, what is the third heaven? Some commentators have said the third heaven here is really just the most expressive way that the Bible could describe the heaven where God exists and dwells. Some other commentators would go, well, the third heaven is, the first heaven is the atmosphere, the second heaven is the stars and planets, and the third heaven is actually the abode of God. Whatever you believe about that, the end result is the third heaven is talking about heaven itself. It's talking about the throne room of God. That's what happens here. By the way, if you've ever wanted to study about heaven, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know about heaven, but it has given us enough to love, serve, worship, and look forward to it someday. In fact, one of the really good books on the subject of heaven is a book called Heaven, right, by Randy Alcorn. Um, Actually, in our bookstore, you can purchase that book. It's We actually, I believe Beth Rose told me today is the first day we open back up those doors officially. So you can go and get books again in there. Um, It's a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn, a wonderful book on the subject matter. Paul gets a vision into heaven, but he downplays it so much he goes into third-person mode. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, right? Notice that. Look in verse 3. I know, a, I know such a man. Twice he uses the third person. Downplaying the experience. Not making, it, um, not making it something that is central to his argument. It's interesting. It's interesting. Now, I don't know about you, but what usually happens a lot of times is um, people, when they have some kind of experience, for instance, they, the near-death experience, they die Usually when those people say, I had a near-death experience or an out-of-body experience, I die, they usually after that do podcasts, write books, make money, and things of that nature. I want you to notice Paul had a different perspective. That did not compare to Christ. It's really interesting. People say, what do you think about people who say they have near-death experiences or have they've seen into heaven come back alive, and, then, and usually they, they do a lot of things to write books and publicize it. What do you think about that, Nick? I would say... Well, on first glance, first pass, I just want to say, Paul didn't make that a center focus of his life. In fact, he's so reluctant, he says, I know a guy. I know a guy. Interesting. But the Corinthians would have been interested in him talking about this. But even though the the passivity of it, look in verse 2 and 3. I know a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or out of the body, I don't know. He's saying, this guy, which is really him... He had a vision into glory, into heaven, into paradise. Whether God took his whole body and soul, the whole person up into glory to see it, or whether his body stayed on earth, but just his, but just his soul went to, went to see it, he basically is a little bit dismissive of saying, I don't know. In fact, that's not even my focus. I, that's actually not even something I'm, I'm super concerned with. Twice, look at it, verse two and three, he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Now, the Corinthians would have been interested in getting the nuance and details. Paul says, it's something that God has provided for me, as, and really as a part of his apostleship. But he says, this is not the central focus. In fact, I want to downplay this. In fact, this is not a central part of, of who I am. So he says, I know this guy. And then he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Really downplays it. Doesn't spend a lot of time. Because what's really important to him Christ. And I'll show this to you here, and what Christ was doing, even in this. Now, it's interesting. I want y'all us to look at something at the end of verse 3. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. What does he say, the last two words of verse 3? Just a side application. So good for our souls. Have you ever gotten to the point in life where you thought, I could really love and enjoy and worship and serve God if God would just give me an answer to the questions I have. Right? You ever been there? Why are these difficult things happen? Why would I lose my job? Why would I lose my health? Why God? Why God? Why God? Why God? What's interesting in the text? What Paul's more enthusiastic? You're going to find out is really about the work of the gospel than he is even finding out all the answers. Here's a guy who gets the picture into glory. And he says, in the body, I don't know. Out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I'm good with that. You know, sometimes in life, you've really got to stop picking apart all the minutia and just go, I don't know, but God knows. And that's good enough for me. That doesn't mean we don't think deep. That means we don't do evaluation. But there does come a point sometimes in life where you have to say, God has not provided a clear answer on this. And what God has provided in clarity, He provides it through principle or precept in His Word, and God knows. I can remember um it's a little over five years ago now, I and mean, many of y'all remember it was a it was a it was a terrible time um when we had that, that house fire with one of our members, um Danny Kudre. he lost his wife, and then three y'all remember the three kids from India that one of the missionaries that we actually still um support Srinivas. And I can remember that night, um, a terrible night. I can remember preaching the funeral a couple days later. And what do you say to people when, of something of this terrible? And the only thing that God gave me in that moment, and it's still something that I cling to today, is I, at the funeral, my message title was, I don't know why, but I know why. It was simply admitting that there's things that God's going to do with this, but ultimately, I don't know, but God does. And I'm completely satisfied and okay with that. Even in the text here, as paul 's describing something very sweet, something the Corinthians would have latched onto, they would have been very excited about. I just want you to know he doesn't he downplays it he doesn 't even want to talk about it, but he will, which leads us to point number three. Uh, point number three: Paul is forbidden to talk about what he saw and heard in this experience. Look in verse four, so you might be wondering like why is he even talking about this Nick well. In a minute you'll find out he's doing it for their good. But what's interesting, look in verse 4. He is forbidden to talk about what he saw and heard in his experience. He says, I was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Paradise. You see that word paradise? That's the same word used when Jesus was on the cross and the thief on the cross repents. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in what? paradise that word paradise when you look at it it, in the greek it means pleasure ground pleasure garden pleasure ground pleasure garden right it's talking about heaven by the way heaven would be heaven if god wasn't there right what makes heaven so great is him now it's interesting when you look in genesis the the place of pleasure the pleasure ground paradise was the garden of eden right And then if you look even through the Old Testament, do you remember the tabernacle when you were on the inside of the tabernacle? Does anybody remember what it would remind you of? The Garden of Eden and then the Garden to come someday. When you read Revelation chapter 21 and 22, you discover that heaven someday, the new heaven, new earth, is is a recalling of the Garden of Eden, but better and with no potential for the curse of the fall or anything of that nature. It's paradise. It's the garden. This is what God has been painting a picture of all through Scripture. Pleasure ground, the pleasure garden. So Paul says, I got to see this paradise. I got to see this pleasure garden. I got to be in the throne room of God. What a great place to be. But notice what he says in verse 4. I heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Once again, if someone were to see into heaven and get a picture, they probably would have wrote a book by now. And Paul says, I can't even talk about what I saw. I can't even talk about it. I can't even express it. Now we find that that John uh, on the island of Patmos in Revelation expresses some things when it comes to Revelation. But in this situation, Paul says, I can't even talk about it. Which is really interesting. The candy that you just had a while ago... By the way, did you notice on the back end how I, at first I thought that candy was almost gum? Right? it took like. Man, this took forever just to. I almost wore out my jaws just trying to get that candy down. I didn't warn you of that first, but you know maybe you've discovered it. So Paul here has been sweetening it up. I know a man. Uh, he, vision, Revelation, um, in the body. I don't. I mean, they're the Corinthians are peaked. They they think that this is the sign of something really spiritual, an emotional kind of a supernatural experience. Even a part of their pagan culture, the idea was you get drunk and you take some kind of hallucinogen and that will put you in a, a, an ecstatic state where you can really experience God. Because that's the only way to experience Him is some kind of emotionally drug-induced kind of euphoria. So when he mentions this, this piques their interest because they think this is actually true spirituality. But now they've been chewing on the candy and the candy now starts to turn sour. He says in verse 4, I was caught up to paradise, but guys, guess what? Can't tell you anything about it and wouldn't be permitted to do it. Man, that candy turned bitter really fast. They don't get to know it. I mean, how would you, how would you feel if it was like, man, Jason, you got to see into heaven. Jason, tell me all about it. And Jason's like, nah. You know, how, how frustrating is that? The candy turned sour right here. It no longer has the appeal, but he does have their attention. He does have their attention now. So look at verse 5, and this is uh, point 4 on your outline. Paul, for the good of Corinthians, he will not talk about his experience in this third heaven, this paradise. Now, remember, it's plural, so he's had many of these. But here, he's going to talk about, he talked about one. And notice he doesn't even give the details. He just basically says, "I know a guy." Downplays it. Don't know if he was in or out of the body. God knows it. Went up to paradise. Can't talk anything about it. He downplays it. But for the good of the Corinthians, he will talk. Uh, he will not talk about this experience. Why would he not talk about this experience? Because the Corinthians would be tempted to focus everything on this kind of idea of ooh, true spirituality is when you get to experience some emotional, euphoric experience. And this is how you judge true Christianity. There even is this idea, I hear it all the time, that people think if you really are experiencing God, then you have to have some emotional high. Not true. Now, I will tell you this. Worshiping God can be accompanied by emotional experience. God has emotions. We have emotions. Being image bearers, that's a good thing. But don't let emotions and feelings be the driver of are you close to God. Actually, in a minute you're going to discover Paul is close to God and it doesn't look like a good situation. I mean, how many of us would say I'm close to God and we would, and someone says, well, ooh, you're close to God. Tell me, tell me why you're close to God. And you say, well, because Satan has been impaling me with a spear and he has been tormenting me and, man, I am so close to God right now. Most of us would think, okay, it's time to lock this dude up. Uh, this this dude isn't thinking right. But what you're going to discover that is that's kind of what happens here in a minute. Look at verse 5 through 6. Paul, for their good, he will not talk about this experience. So things now turn sour. Verse 5. On behalf of such a man, he says, I will boast. This guy who saw into third heaven. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in weaknesses. So Paul says... You now want me to talk about this guy. You want me to talk about the experiences. Not gonna do it. But you know what I will talk about? I will talk about myself and the weaknesses I've experienced as a result of it. Which, by the way, if the, the title for this whole book of Second Corinthians is the Gospel for the Weak. It was really interesting. The Corinthians were believing these false apostles because they were claiming how strong they were by the money they would receive, by these kind of sign gifts, by all these kind of things. And Paul says, let me actually show you the reality of the gospel. I'll show it to you through weakness. He proved the authenticity of his apostleship through weakness, where the false apostles proved their authenticity by how many goodies they had, or perceived they had. Very interesting. Verse 6, he says this, For I do not wish to boast, I will not be... For if I do wish to boast, I would not be foolish. For if I will be speaking, I'll be speaking the truth. So he says, if I were permitted to speak about this, I would not be a foolish thing. i would be speaking the truth of what I saw and heard. But I'll refrain from this so that no one will consider me beyond what he sees in me or hears from me. He knew these guys. He knew that they were men pleasers and men worshipers. Paul did not want them to worship God through Paul. Paul didn't want to be their mediator. He wanted there to be one mediator between God and man. And that's the man Jesus Christ. That's what he wanted. And he knew that if he went in and described what happened in, this, in heaven and the vision that he had seen and any of these other visions, that all of a sudden they would be worshipping and bowing down to Paul. Paul didn't want that. So for their good, the Corinthians good. He doesn't talk about this experience of the third heaven. But what he does talk about is how he suffered. Go to verse 7. So Paul will talk about the proactive discipline of of humility his experience brought. Look in verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, plural, meaning there's been a lot, for this reason, to keep me from, what does it say? Exalting myself. Meaning, all these revelations I got could be a position of pride in my life. You know, the interesting thing is, it's proactive. It's proactive here. You know, sometimes we get disciplined by God as his children because we've done something wrong and he's disciplining us, trying to correct our behavior. But sometimes God's discipline is proactive, meaning we didn't do anything wrong, but God knowing us and caring for us and loving us like a parent does with a child, he will proactively discipline us. Don't we do this with our kids? Don't we teach our kids way before they can Uh, put their hand near an oven or before they ever have put their hand near the oven? Don't we teach them not to go near the oven? Don't we teach them before they've ever gone towards the street not to go towards the street? Have we not done that? That's discipline. That's proactive. In the text, he says that all these visions I've received, hold your horses of thinking of letting this be a position of actually praising me and thinking great and thinking that I'm something special. Don't worship me because... These revelations and visions I've been given, although they are a part of his apostleship, it, God knows that there will be a temptation for exalting myself, and I would even say others exalting him prematurely. He says that, that God has given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment him, to keep him from exalting himself. Twice, he says in verse 7, exalting myself. He, he doesn't want to exalt himself. So God, he talks about the weakness he's experienced as a result of this thorn in the flesh. Now, it's interesting. You see that word thorn? That word thorn, almost every translation uses the word thorn. Good translation of that, of that Greek word. Not a bad translation. But when you look up that Greek word, there's two definitions to that word. Thorns and steak. Not S-T-E-A-K, right? It's the other kind of stake, right? The stake that would really hurt. And when you look at all the translations, it's not a bad translation to say thorn. I found one translation, the Weymouth, New Testament. And here's what it says in this translation. It says, and by judging by the stupendous grandeur of the revelations, therefore, this is a 1900s, you know, one. So the language is a little different. Very King James-ish. Therefore, lest I should be over-elated, there has been sent to me like the agony of impalement, Satan's angel dealing blow after blow, lest I should be over-elated. I read one commentator that said, you know, it seems like, some." and this is actually true when translations are happening. I mean, sometimes translators, they'll translate with a good word, the right word, and sometimes what, what is a part of church history. They're not going to put a bad word, but they're going to... If, something's, if everybody's used to seeing thorn in the flesh, unless they see some merit to not put that, they're going to continue with that word. But one commentator said, take a step back and look at the text. And when Satan comes after you, is it really a thorn or is it almost like a stake? Is it impelment? I don't know about you, but when I read about Job and what Satan wanted to do with Job, it looks a little bit more less than a thorn, but it looks more like a stake. It looks like impelment. It's not a bad translation, but also the fullness of that word, not only thorn could be used, but it would be appropriate to use the word stake, something that's big, something that is piercing, something that causes monumental damage. So Paul says, as a result of these revelations, God has given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Wow. Wow. He actually says all these revelations have actually resulted in humility, have actually resulted in weakness. Now it was interesting if you look at the text, look in verse 7. A thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. Satan has come to torment him. But what you're going to discover in the next verse, he clearly knows that all Satan is the one tormenting him, God isn't the one in control of what Satan's doing. The truth is this, Satan is God's Satan. God uses Satan as his pawn. Now, there's nothing great about Satan. There I mean there is I mean, well, I would say this. He has a lot of power, but is being used for God's eternal purposes. Even in the text we see this. You could be suffering. Some people think that when they suffer that there's some curse against them and actually it could be God's way of transforming you. There could be some suffering that is happening right now that will keep you humble, keep you from exalting yourself. And yes, the hurt hurts. It is not a thorn, but a stake in the flesh. And it is not small, but a torment, a tormenting thing. People have asked many times, what do you think this Thorn in the flesh is. Or stake in the flesh. What do you think this messenger of Satan is? There's been all sorts of speculation. Some think it was an eye disease. Um, they say that because he talks about writing a large let, large letters um, in Galatians. Um, I think if you were talking about this in context. And, and once, once again, I don't know if we ultimately know. But if you're taking context. What would be the biggest thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians? What would be the biggest torment from Satan? Well... You remember in chapter 11, he describes all those difficult things. And then in chapter 11, he says, And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure of me of concern for all the churches. It seems like the probably biggest thorn in the flesh, the stake in the flesh, is actually the concern he has for the body of Christ. And related to that is these false teachers who have come in and are destroying the people's faith. If you were to look back over at chapter 10, do you remember what he says in chapter 10? I'm sorry, chapter 11? Of course you remember. That was a couple of weeks ago. You remember everything, right? He says in verse 13, Of such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as the apostles of Christ. Talking about the false apostles. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So he calls these false apostles, these false teachers... Um, Satan's instruments. And he said, this is how Satan does. He comes as the angel of light. So if you want to take something that's more of a, in context, what is this thorn in the flesh? In the book of 2 Corinthians, more than likely, you would point towards the thorn in the flesh are these false apostles, false messengers who are teaching the people destructive heresy, teaching these people that they can be saved by their own works, teaching these people that, um, that the way to God is actually through these kind of, um, these, these kind of supernatural experiences. These are the thorns in the flesh. Paul comes in and he spends 18 months with his Corinthian church. He writes letter after letter. He has to now come back to them. They've said all sorts of terrible things about his ministry. The more he's loved them, the more they've hated him. A good case of thorn in the flesh might be these very people. Now let me just take a step back. People say, you don't know what's going on inside my head. It's so bad. I can't, I can't function in life. Well, I will tell you this. There's a possibility that you actually can. Paul here is really going through something terrible. Could you imagine giving yourself completely to a people who do nothing but talk bad about you behind your back? Right. Now y'all have never been talked bad about before behind your back, right? That does y'all don't know what this, we don't know what that's like, right? Have that ever ha- you know when that's happened that has just ate you alive. I mean, you just you know it has ate you alive. And Paul says, that thorn in the flesh, people who are taking the good things I've done to serve, I've sacrificed my body, my health, everything for these Corinthians. And then these jokers come in and downgrade and down talk and persuade these people away. What a thorn in the flesh. You would think he'd just be ready to give up. But he's not. He comes in and he says something in verse 8 that's really interesting. He talks about, the torment of, of Satan, but then he talks about his petition to God. This is point number seven, to take away the torment. Look at verse eight. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord. How many times, Church? Three times. Did Him I leave me? Just like in the Garden of Gethsemane, you find Jesus three times going to the Lord. Take this cup, let it pass from me. You find here three times he goes to the Lord. He asks the Lord. Point number seven on your outline, Paul will talk about his petition for God to take away the torment of Satan. I don't think that he's um, some kind of person who just likes pain. He does ask God, God, please take this away. Take this away. Take this away. He asked the Lord three times. But God says no to it. He asked, but God says no. You know what's interesting in my soul? This thorn in the flesh. There's so many things that the apostle Paul could do. But there's some things he can't do. I mean, he's healing people all over the place. When you look in the Book of Acts, he's healing. You remember the guy Eutychus who who falls asleep during church, and this is why we don't have three sto- We don't have you know, church. You know, that's why we don't have a second story where you can fall out the window and to your death. Right? You remember in Acts where he this guy falls asleep during the sermon and, and falls to his death, and then Paul raises him back up. I mean, all these. I mean, there's all sorts of miracles that he does. All I mean, remember about the guy in Acts 4, Acts fourteen. That he tells him to stand up, a guy that was lame from birth. So Paul could, as an apostle, do all this healing physically, but he couldn't heal himself. Just, once again, tells you, anybody that ever healed didn't heal because they intrinsically had power. They healed only because God had given them that grace and power for the moment. Being an apostle of, of Christ, he had the ability to do miracle-working healing ministry, but only, as God permitted, because he couldn't even heal himself in verse 8. He says, I pled with the Lord three times concerning this. He petitioned the Lord, Lord, take this away. God, I don't want this. Would you please take it away? Now, let's go to verse 9. Now, you've ate the candy, you've gotten the sweet, and now you've seen the sour. And the sour is, and what Paul, the sour for them was, hey, I got this great revelation. Clue in. Oh, I can't tell you about it. What I can tell you about is how much I've suffered as a result of the revelation. And there's now a thorn in the flesh. I've asked God to take it away, and he won't take it away. Very sour right now. But now we get to the sweet part. Now, just to kind of help you guys, I have another round of candy coming. So let's take these two, pass them around. Once again, I have promised, I promise you, I've done nothing to this candy, right? John and Debbie were there. I've done nothing to this candy, right? You take out one, take out two. I've got all sorts of different types of candy. For those of you that may have a gluten allergy, I've got, there's like Skittles and stuff in there, right? So you can just pick what you want. Pick as much as you want or as little as you want. Do whatever you want. Take some candy. Enjoy it. Open it now you can. I don't, it's okay. I'm handing it out to you, right? Where else can you eat candy in church? There's a point of why I'm handing this out to you. I, you heard me earlier say, I couldn't find a candy that was sweet, then sour, then sweet. That didn't exist. But you know what I could find? Is a candy that has no sourness to it. A candy that has no downside. Well, I mean, it's calories, but who's counting those, right? A candy that is sweet to the mouth, sweet to the taste, goes down sweet. A candy that, I've even noticed, I've provided you multiple different selections. Because I just want you to know... This is a pleasurable candy pass. There's no trick to this. You you get to choose right here what you're going to have. It's not the one I handed you earlier that would be sweet than sour. This one's just going to be sweet. That's what Paul does now in the text. He now takes this sour moment for the Corinthians and says, let me tell you something that's really sweet. Let me tell you something that's going to change your life. Look in verse 9. This is point 8 on your outline. Paul will talk about God's response to his request to take away the torment. So he will talk about that. Look in verse 9. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. I just want you to notice something. In the whole book of 2 Corinthians, has he quoted anything that came directly from God's lips? Not a one. The high point of this book is right here. That delectable Hershey's chocolate, Reese's peanut butter cup, whatever kind of candy you may like that's coming around, that delicious sweet morsel is right here. There's no downside to this text. There's no downside to what God has said to him. Paul asked him. Asked him three times. God says no. And then God does something. When God tells you no, that doesn't mean that he's not going to be there. When God tells you no, it doesn't mean that he's not going to be there. So God tells him, no, God says, no, I'm actually going to continue to let this thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, continue to torment you. I will not take it away. So God doesn't take it away. Paul now prays for pain's conversion as God gives him a message that will take him far. This is this piece of candy with no downside. Look in verse nine. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace that saved you. My grace that is sustaining you. My grace that is empowering you. It is my grace that will walk with you. For power is perfected in weakness. This power... If you look back at chapter 1, Paul talks about this power, and this power is directly related to the resurrection of Christ. What God is telling Paul is, I'm not going to take away the thorn in the flesh. It's there to as a proactive discipline to keep you humble. Paul says, listen, Corinthian church, I'm not going to tell you about my revelations and the revelations I've experienced. I'm actually just going to tell you about how weak I am by this messenger of Satan because it has kicked out all the other supports in life except Christ. And now... The grace of God is sufficient for my life. God will meet me in my greatest time of need. We can go to his throne for help. Um, Hebrews says, for help and need. For grace and mercy to help in time of need. Look in verse 9. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weaknesses. Boast in them. Christ, um, Paul isn't going to boast in his revelation or vision or the third heaven. He's going to boast in the grace of God that is doing more than just saving him and sustaining him, but is wrapping uh, is wrapping his strength around his life. The power of Christ may dwell upon me. You know what's interesting about this word "dwell upon me"? This is a tent word, right? It's a tent word. It's a word that you would use for a tent. Dwell upon me, he says. Just like the, it's kind of like the idea of just like the tabernacle or a tent. I'm going to embrace what God is doing, this grace, because it is a tent for me. It comes upon me. It overshadows me. It's the place that I want to be, this tent. God's grace. This is what I want. Corinthian church, you have been bedazzled by all that glitters is gold thinking this. You've been bedazzled by thinking you can earn your way to Christ by your good merits. You've been bedazzled by thinking that if, if God is with you, then everything will go perfect in your life. Corinthians, would you please listen to me as a true apostle of Christ? I am suffering. God has not taken away that suffering. God means for that suffering to conform me to his image. I am becoming more humble and less exalting of myself. And at every moment, God's grace is meeting me. I will dwell in it. I will dwell in it. I'm okay with it. I love the text for that. What he's really saying in the end is what... What really is sour is really sweet. This is hard. It's hard to be impelled by Satan. That's a hard life. But he actually is describing that God's grace is so much better. He's, he's talking about the grace of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. It's so much better. So much so that he uses the word gladly. Now go to verse 10 as we, as we end our message here in just a minute. And this is point 9. Paul will talk about his response to God's denial of his request. I'm so glad about this. I will dwell in it. Look at verse 10. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with hardships. I just want you to look. These are all bad things. Insult, distresses, persecutions, hardships. These are all bad things. And it's not like he intrinsically wanted them, but he knew that every bit of difficulty that God had in his life that even God used Satan as a pawn, as God's own pawn, that in the end, it would cause him to be weaker. It would cause him in such a way that he could not depend on his own strength. He could not depend on his own intellect. He could not appeal to all the vast missionary work that he has done. All he can appeal to is the fact that I am weak and Christ is strong. I'm insufficient, but the gospel is superior. All he could appeal to in the moment was the grace of God that saved him, will sustain him, and will bring him through. Paul had no other place that he could run to. That's why I say in this text, it's sweet only for a small time. It gets very sour. But in the end, Paul says, this is the sweetest thing. To be weak in Christ is actually to be strong in Christ. So, is life perfect for any of us in here? Nope. Is life going the way you thought it would go? Nope, probably not. Are you you in the position you pictured yourself being five years ago? Probably not. Ten years ago? Probably not. Yesterday? Probably not. But don't lose hope that God God is doing a work, and that work is meant to bring us to humility. And in every bit of weakness, there is an opportunity to trust God more, to lean on His grace even more. Paul who knows a lot more than us, a lot wiser than us, a guy who wouldn't, who wouldn't spend his time writing a book about, about what he saw in heaven, says to have the grace of God thicker in my life, that's a tent I want to put on. So take me camping. Hey, let's stand to our feet and pray over this. Have a time of responding to God. If you're here and you're not in Christ, you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to pray for you right now it has bowed. Would y'all just let me pray for someone who's not in Christ this morning? And listen, I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you're not in Christ, you can pray this prayer between you and God. And if you mean it, the Bible says if you will call upon the name, if you'll believe in your heart, that God is, that you will believe in your heart um, and confess with your mouth that you'll be saved. And so, I'm going to give you an opportunity. And prayer would we'll go like this God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I've broken your commands. Would you save me? God, come into my life and heart. I trust. I trust that Jesus was the sacrifice for my sins. I need you. I need forgiveness of my sins. I need new life right now. I need a new king. That king is not me. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for the promise that you said if I would believe and call upon your name that you would save me. Thank you. Thank you for the cross and the resurrection. Now listen, if you prayed that prayer, would you let someone know about it? I remember praying a prayer similar to that when I was 16 years old. Can I pray for the rest of us? Lord, use our text. We really do need it. We're continuing to suffer. Some of us, that's all we see. But could we trust your character enough to know that even Paul in the midst of this was able to say, let's go camping. Let's put on this tent. It's so much better. God, would you get let our people, the grace of God, would you let them perceive it and know it, the grace that the resurrection of Christ promises us, that the Holy Spirit inside of us wants to give us. God, would you let your word be precious and sweet, not the philosophies of man, but what thus saith the Lord. Would you let us reject the vulnerable voices, these intrusive ideas that we have that we keep meditating on that are not of you. Would you let us meditate on what your truth is? God, let us find your grace sufficient in weakness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together in response to God's truth.